everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Sarah Allred from Georgia. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So Tell us a little bit about your background in uh, prison educational programs. Well, I'll give you the short version. Um, I was introduced to the world of prison education programs in 2007. It was in the summer of 2007 that I took part in an instructor training seminar associated with the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. It's a fairly intensive seven-day training program that prepares instructors um, to become inside-out teachers. And so ever since then, I have been involved in prison education programs, both as an instructor, but also serving the center in a variety of capacities since then. And lastly, some of my scholarship has focused on evaluations of prison education programs. Now, it seems like having worked pretty extensively in the last few years with incarcerated people, at least out here in California, um, that prison education is kind of making a comeback that for a long time, uh, you know, it, it seemed to be shunned as kind of uh, an extra perk. And what we've kind of finally started recognizing again is that if we want people to be successful in integrating back to society and 95 percent of all incarcerated people will be released at some point um we we need to give them some tools to be able to succeed um is that your general kind of feeling as well well, you've mentioned several good points um, that I can respond to, one of which uh, that stood out to me is the phrase, uh, I think you used the phrase, has, has made a comeback. Um, I would put some significant parameters around that in terms of where, how much we see prison education programming, especially the type that you're talking about. Uh, you're talking about educational programs, of course, they're basic adult education programs, vocational, technical, and higher education. That, that comeback notion um, has been most apparent in the um, resuscitation of the uh, Pell Grant availability 
um, being uh, opened up to incarcerated people once again after it was um, killed uh, as part of a, a 1996 crime bill. And while I don't in any way want to suggest that that is um, not ideal, it's excellent, but in terms of the extent of its reach and its uh, comeback status, it's far more limited than was the case in the 1990s. Um, the, the objective reach in terms of number of prisons where higher education programs in particular have been uh, reinvigorated by that program is far more limited than people appreciate. Even people in those facilities, far fewer people are eligible to take part in those programs than are interested. But I do recognize and endorse what you said in terms of that um, movement toward both in spirit and in objective um, uh, pathways uh, that there has been uh, some new things um, carved out. Lastly, you mentioned something else that uh, stood out to me, you know, why, in, in essence, why not invest in these types of programs in addition to other helpful programs, uh, helpful for facilities, helpful for the people who are incarcerated there, in part because we know that, I'm going to use the phrase, education works. It, it works uh, figuratively and literally. Um, however, I think it's also important to keep in mind that Many of the people who are coming into our prisons have been uh, severely underserved at the point of entry by our educational system. So in some ways, I see this not as a uh, give back uh, effort, but as a way to uh, address some prior and significant um, ways we have not done our due dil diligence as a society in terms of educating our children and our youth so that largely they are uh, better equipped to avoid finding themselves in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and I think that's a really critical point because I've always argued that if we don't invest in education on the front end, we're going to pay for it in the back end and we pay for it uh, in a lot of ways, right? Because we're we're paying to incarcerate people and, and then we're kind of trying to scramble to... Uh, to catch up, whereas if we were able to put uh, the emphasis into the front end, we might be able to avoid a lot of this. Education is 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 one of the best crime fighters that we have. Yeah, educate education and the ability to. I'm not sure how to label this second thing that I have in mind, but education and the ability to retain some sort of meaningful connection to to one's um, home community and, and key social um, systems of support. When we truncate those, when we sever those sorts of things, it's not impossible, but extremely difficult to imagine oneself reintegrating successfully, even if you're well-equipped or relatively more well-equipped objectively um, in terms of, you know, uh, um, uh, higher education at the point of exit as opposed to entry. So why is it, if we seem to understand the importance of education, that we've, we had moved away from it? Oh, there are all sorts of reasons uh, that we've moved away from it. Um, and, and those reasons, I think, have changed over time. 
Um, early on, um, there was, when I say early on in the 70s and 80s, um, any assessments of what was going on in prisons um, was wrongly interpreted as having no effect on people incarcerated. People will remember, I think it was called the, the Martindale Report, that effectively claimed, quote, nothing works. And when you have scholars who allegedly have done, done their job in assessing different types of programs, uh, having their work interpreted as having no impact, it, it, it carries a lot of weight to those who make decisions about bu budget allocations when um, you know, resources are limited across all sorts of public programs. And for, for some entities, it's easier to um, more quickly diminish programming for those who have, uh, who apparently stand out in terms of how they've committed a wrong or a violation against society. Well, okay, well then let's cut those programs if they're not doing any good. That's an oversimplification of one reason historically for why we've limited things. Um, we can talk about the, the ambiance of the 1990s, that crime bill, that in addition to other harsh things that were rolled out, um, emotionally, practically, politically, uh, financially, it just seemed to align with that um, harsher, more punitive mindset that was characteristic uh, of how we were generally, not, not unanimously, unanimously, but generally um, in the United States. So, so there's several reasons that have contributed to that. And obviously a driving force was uh, the availability for students to um, gather the essential funds to, to enroll in programs. We all know that uh, people who, find, who are incarcerated are vastly overrepresented among those at the lower end of the economic uh, stratification system. And so they're more likely to be eligible, you know, if they were free world people for financial aid, uh, that was stripped in the 1990s. And um, so several things, not just those two big things, but there's several things in our climate, several things in our financial considerations that have led to um, the reduction in programming. So now talk a little bit about your work. Well, um, I'm not sure what piece of my work you'd like to hear more about, but I'll, I'll start and, and please uh, follow up with redirection or clarifying questions as you, as you choose to. Uh, I'll begin with some general things. Um, I uh, early on was very intrigued with the inside out uh, pedagogy for um, higher education courses. Um, admittedly didn't understand what it was about the structure or content or arrangement of those types of combined courses. And so I started off doing some very small scale evaluations of inside out courses, trying to learn from the student's perspective, um, what if anything was particularly educative about that learning model and how it affected students from their perspective across the time frame of the course. But more recently, I'm particularly excited to talk a little bit about um, uh, a participatory evaluation project that I um, designed and implemented and wrapped up with two absolutely amazing partners uh, who are also uh, were affiliated with the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. 
So imagine hundreds and hundreds of college courses being offered throughout the United States at different um, uh, correctional facilities, state prisons, jails, federal prisons, uh, college courses. And coming out of those college courses, a subset of the students effectively decided that they would like to keep meeting, certainly not through the auspices of a college course, but for the opportunity to work together collaboratively on initiatives that they had discussed and perhaps work out some um, framing designs in the context of the course. Um, about 30 such groups, um, or fairly organic in nature, uh, sprung forth from those courses at institutions currently not just in the United States, but in a couple of other countries. And we call them alumni groups. Uh, they, they call themselves think tanks. And so the project we've just wrapped up involved evaluating uh, in a very descriptive way uh, the, the work and opportunities and barriers and approaches to taking part in those think tanks. That was an amazing effort. I'm honestly still not sure how we pulled it off, but because two my two partners um, are currently serving life sentences in a, um, in a facility in the state of Pennsylvania. And so our ability to, to work out details, big and small, uh, has been uh, truly a labor of love because we both are very committed to this type of learning and are very committed to uh, the importance of higher education in prisons. So what have we learned about some of the barriers? Well, um, we've learned several things about barriers. Some of the things that we've learned, I wouldn't cast them as, as new. It's just that we have uh, kind of memorialized some things uh, about barriers to educational programs, especially of the type that we evaluated. Um, keep in mind that um, we, in, in our most recent large-scale project, uh, we were convening focus groups with people who, who essentially were, were taking part in very well-organized, what we would call co-curricular programs. These were not college courses. Remember, they were alumni groups. And because of that, their existence was um, possible basically um, due to the decision of key administrators and correctional officers. These programs are not dictated or required by any state agency. There's truly, truly voluntary um, um, groups, co-curricular groups. And so one of the main concerns or barriers to being able to take part in these programs is the sense that they're just just their ability to, con to convene can be yanked away at any given time. They have no no rights to be able to, to convene or take part uh, in this type of program. So that was the one that really stood out more than others that was expressed in a variety of different ways for different reasons. Sometimes it had to do with concerns about uh, other goings on in their facilities. For example, if, if even if none of their members are involved at the facility, has some um, unusual security threats or there's a, a long-term lockdown uh, or changes in something in their state level Department of Corrections, um, their, their right to meet can be terminated at any given time. 
um, if, and it's it's been very rare, if one of their members um, is accused of and found guilty of some important facility, a breach of some important facility rule, uh, the administrator has the right to say, well, fine, then your group cannot be, exist anymore. You can't meet. Um, so those, those are their main concerns. Their secondary concerns are their resources are very limited. You may be surprised to know that many prisons do not have a, a room that can accommodate these types of, of meetings uh, that where inside and outside people can come together with not excessive distractions and sit down to the business, uh, their weekly and planning endeavors uh, that they have in mind. So resources, the right to exist uh, for different sorts of reasons um, and the nature of, of their, their group are primary things. I know that, you know, lockdowns are kind of a universal problem whenever you're working with incarcerated people and, and they don't have any control over that. Um, is there um, recommendations that came out of this uh, focus group? Hmm. Well, um, there were recommendations, but they didn't have to do with um, things that of the nature that you just mentioned, because um, you, it just, it's not possible from a kind of a, a line of authority perspective to, to ask that certain kind of groups uh, be allowed to convene, even in the context of something like a lockdown or, or some other kind of um, outward um, concern. Um, but yes, there were recommendations that came out of this uh, one of them had to do with um, uh, pursuing statewide endorsement for their existence uh, through Department of Corrections. And, and here's what they meant by that. You know, the Department of Corrections for this type of program is not very likely to say to any given facility where um, college courses are offered, um, if an alumni group wants to, to continue meeting, you are required to allow them to convene. That's really not the recommendation that unfolded from our conversations, but uh, a request that Department of Corrections make time to understand what these groups are about and to express their um, written approval that um, uh, they're valid groups um, and that if a facility administrator uh, is willing to do so, you know, allow them to meet that the, the state level uh, would support that because they're familiar with what they are. That lets people at the facility le uh, level not feel like they're reinventing the wheel every time they go to administrator and say, well, we'd like to keep meeting and uh, we'd like to meet as an organized group, a rather closed group. No one will be in the group except those who have completed this type of college course, but we'd like to start meeting regularly and, and be able to point to state level endorsement. Um, that would be probably a primary recommendation coming up out of our report. Um, and, and this might be a broader question, but um, were you able to, to look at kind of the variation between states and also facilities within states in terms of you know, their acceptance of educational programs? We, that was not part of what we looked at 
in our project, um, what we have done uh, for related purposes, though, is just do kind of a, uh, a sweeping review of what is known about uh, clustering of programs across states. And we know that there actually is a, an amazing amount of variability in terms of uh, which programs host um, more educational programs and programs of different types. And, and um, this kind of connects with um, the good question you opened with uh, earlier on in our conversation. Um, a lot of people don't know that, um, for example, uh, about a fifth of all credit bearing, you know, college level credit bearing programs that are currently available are concentrated in three states. Uh, and on the one hand, you could say, go, go for these three states, but um, that's in the vast minority in terms of where programs might be distributed across the United States. So we don't, we don't see um, um, uh, any uh, kind of comparable representation of these programs across states. And so we, we have looked into that, but more as background information. So which three states, out of curiosity? Yeah, California, New York, and Texas. These represent uh, the places where um, a, a significant minority of, um, of facilities are located, where post-secondary educational institutions that offer credit bearing uh, for their uh, students uh, exist. So they are very concentrated. Yeah, and none of those three surprised me. Don't you know, surprise me either. The three large states, Texas is slightly different, but I know that in a lot of ways, Texas is actually more advanced than some of the other states in terms of their programming in prisons, um, something that people might not expect to know. Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind that as a uh, as states, they are on the upper end of states that just have more people who are incarcerated. So Correct. on the one hand, you may expect them to be overrepresented among those uh, where credit bearing programs exist. But it's also important to keep in mind that even within those contexts, a very small fraction of people who are incarcerated who are A, eligible, and B, interested in taking part in those programs are able to take part in those programs. So shout out for those states. However, uh, the people who would like to and are eligible to take part in their programs uh, are too few, even in those contexts. Yeah, and in fact, you know, my experience is mainly out here in California. And so, you know, I know that the demand for those programs far outstrips the supply. I had a guy on who's starting uh, a prison master's program, and he told me something very interesting. He told me that the recidivism rate for people that complete a prison master's program, of which there are very few, of course, uh, is zero. Um, wow. But... I mean, it, it, it's just illustrative. And I think, you know, I, I think I was just reading this morning, and I tried to find it before you got on here, um, that even just for college programs, the recidivism rate is like 10%. So, I, I mean, we're talking about a system where, in general, the recidivism rate is 
over half, sometimes upwards of 60 or 70 percent. And by educating people, you're greatly reducing it. Again, it, it, it's not surprising and it's not rocket science, but, you know, it, it should inform people at least that this is where we should be putting our efforts in, right? You are absolutely right. Um, so a couple things with regard to those uh, important statistics you shared. Uh, let's not forget, though, that there is a small number of people who come to prison and they have their college degree and they have a master's degree. I've had them in my classes as inside students, but they represent such a small fraction of all the people who come to prison. The other thing that I think we need to unpack as it relates to the importance of educational credentialing while one is incarcerated. Remember, so many people come to prison vastly underserved by their prior experience. That is to say, they come to prison without a high school diploma, they come to prison without a GED. Think about how that situation situates that person socially and economically when they come in. They're not, I'm gonna use the phrase, marriage material. They're not people who are able to largely provide for themselves well uh, on their own as adults. Um, and, and so these are people who are not able to contribute to their household's financial well-being in a way that they would, would, would like to be able to if they um, had different credentials. And so when we think about making educational programs not just available, but part of the culture, of, of being incarcerated and that that's a whole nother conversation you know that it's a it's a magnet not a requirement and a push um, what we don't appreciate is how that credentialing experience yes of course it transforms and and adds objective uh, credentials for the individual but it has direct effects on communities and families and people's sense of self-efficacy it, it changes their standing in their family. Um, it's a source of extreme pride. Children look up to their, their parent or guardian um, with great joy over what they've accomplished in difficult circumstances. And so the ripple effects are, are as great as being able to say X percent of people have advanced their educational attainment while they are in prison. And yes, not having people return to prison is incredibly important for all sorts of reasons. Um, and we can talk a good bit about that as well. Well, and, and I guess the other piece of this is, and I don't have the data in front of me, but I know that the number of incidents um, you know, disciplinary incidents is far lower among people in it who are in educational programs than people that are not. Um, and, and so from a prison safety yeah. standpoint, um, you would think it was would be in their best interest to uh, you know, push this stuff. It is. And one question that many people ask about that is what comes first? Um, is it that things in the culture change um, that promote participation in, in prison education programs or are prison education programs changing something in both the participants that has a, a, is a kind of a, a ripple effect outside. But I've read as well about those sorts of statistics and I think there's several 
kind of push and pull things that affect that. And I'll give you a very small example of, of something that um, has been shared in a, a variety of different uh, ways with me in some of my interviewing. Uh, I remember one person in a focus group used the phrase, uh, something like carrying around a dictionary um, as a participant in this voluntary co-curricular program to actually get to the room where they would meet, he would have to walk down several corridors and was often taking his material with him for purposes of the meeting. People would see him and effectively ask him, what the hell are you doing? It looks like you're carrying around a dictionary with you everywhere you go. And people started to ask questions about what, where are you going? What's the name of this meeting? Why is it important? Why do you even bother with this? It's not required. And it, it just invites uh, curiosity and, and so that, not just that one person, but several people have said it is their sense that just because they exist, they operate as role models for other people who, who may have had other similar role models, may not have had similar role models, seeing men who don't have to do what they're doing, pursue things that have the effect of bettering themselves as well as other people. That role model thing, you know, may involve people who are already like that when they came to prison, um, or it just gives a, a platform for people who to become what they always knew they had within themselves. And so what is changing that? We can't really say it's unidirectional. I think it's a little bit of both, but that's a really important um, observation and insight about what these kinds of programs how they impact and influence facilities. Yes. Yeah. And I just think, you know, first of all, giving somebody a focus and a goal is, is a great way to keep people out of trouble. Um, but also giving them a sense of accomplishment and something to lose. Um, and then, you know, I, I've heard from so many people that prison is just boring. Um, and so uh, finding productive ways to spend your time while you're incarcerated is another way to keep you out of trouble. Yeah, so prison is a lot of things and whatever it is can change and is different from facility to facility for a variety of reasons. Um, it, it Prison can be boring, but it's not boring in the sense that um, 24 seven, uh, every day out of the year, it's a stressful place to live. And for different sorts of reasons, um, talk about, uh, an opportunity to study, um, in a closed setting, the effects of chronic stress on human health. That would be a great location to discover that, um, it's, it's very stressful for all sorts of reasons. People are worried about their personal safety. People are worried about things they can't control. People are worried about managing um, their reputations. They're manage, worried about families, things on the outside. Um, a lot of things are out of, out of their control. Um, but it, it would definitely um, make a huge difference to bring those into the context of prisons. Well, we're, we're just about out of time. If, if someone wants to uh, learn more about some of the work that you've done, how can they go about doing that? Well, um, I would say that just um, find a, a, a scholar search engine, type in my name, but more importantly, 
I would like to encourage people to um, find their favorite search engine and look for um, specific um, higher education and prison programs. Read about them, educate yourself, find out how you can contribute to uh, this important endeavor, whether it's through donating, donating your um, resources, yes, money, uh, if you're a faculty person, you may have an existing program uh, within reach of where you live and work, and you can teach in that context. Um, there are a lot of things that people can do to learn about programs other than reading Sarah Allred's publications, which I would hope that you would do. Uh, but there's so much good scholarship and important information out there about different types of programs. Um, uh, they're very transparent about their their accomplishment and their reach uh, as well as their needs and and more importantly why they exist and how they're making an impact well thanks so much for coming on and uh sharing very fascinating topic for me at least um we've been talking with sarah Allred, um talking about prison education programs this is Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.